It has recently came through our study in Genesis through chapters 6 through 9 this past Wednesday evening where we studied the story of the flood. And as we were studying the story of the flood, there's a lot of material to be found in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's a lot of ground to cover. And so that doesn't give us a great deal of time in class to talk about all the lessons that we learn about the flood or from the flood. There are many lessons we learn from the Genesis account alone. It's just reading from chapter 6, for example. Uh, that uh, chapter 6, we learn some very practical things, 7 and 8 and 9 as well. But I'm interested also in the fact that Noah and the flood are referenced many times in the New Testament to make a point. And so let's begin looking at that list. And what I want to do at this juncture is just kind of run through these quickly to get the gist of where Noah is mentioned and the flood is mentioned. And then we're going to come back and build some studies or some practical things from that. Let's start in Matthew chapter 24. I'm just going to give you the context, make a quick reference and move on. Matthew chapter 24. There is a discussion concerning the destruction of Jerusalem in the first part of the chapter. Toward the latter part of the chapter, there's a discussion concerning the second coming of Christ. And we don't know when that day or the hour will come is the point at verse 36. Now verse 37 says, But of the, uh, as it was in the days of the Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, it's just a reference to Noah and the flood in the context that we need to be ready for the second coming because they were not ready for the, uh, the coming of the flood. More about that context a little bit later. I'm going to skip a comment much on this Luke 3 because it only mentions Noah in the genealogy of Christ in Luke's account. Not mentioned over in Matthew, but is mentioned in Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 17. In Luke 17, I'm not going to say much about this context, for it's simply the same kind of context that we have in Matthew chapter 24. Now, there is some discussion among commentators whether Luke 17 uses the, the story in the context like Matthew does. Is he actually talking about the second coming or is it the destruction of Jerusalem? But anyway, verse 26, we'll comment upon it a little bit later, but it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Doesn't say as much here as we saw in Matthew, but it does reference Noah and the flood. Well, this one is quite obvious that he's going to be mentioned here. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter that talks about so many examples of faith, Hebrews 11 and in 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he became an heir of righteousness according to faith, uh, which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness according to faith. We'll talk about the elements of that text a little bit later, but he's mentioned as an example of faith when he built the ark and saved his household. Now Peter talks about him twice. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, in the context of Christ's suffering and an example of Christ's suffering, he talks about the long-suffering of God when once he waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, wherein a few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And that serves as an antitype of our salvation, which we'll talk about in a moment. So it is in that context of the long-suffering of God and we'll talk about the long-suffering of God. The last I want to mention is it found in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 3. And uh, in verse, uh, or 2 Peter, not the last one, but the 2 Peter 2 and in verse 5 um, is the next to the last passage. 2 Peter 2 and in verse 5 talks about false teachers. And how false teachers are going, and, and those who are followers of false teachers are going to be destroyed. 
And it shouldn't surprise us that God condemns the ungodly because there are a number of examples that he cites. In fact, he cites three. Angels that sin, 2 Peter 2 and in verse 4. Verse 5, he mentions Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. And that's all he says about Noah. The third example is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's in that list of three examples that he mentions the ancient world being destroyed by the flood. Now this is the last of the ones that we're going to mention, and that's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The whole chapter deals with the second coming and how that people are arguing that there has been no change since the beginning of time. The scoffers say that, and we'll come back to that. And so in verses 5 and 6, he said that's not true because there was an abrupt change. And an example of that is the flood. So he says at verse 5, they're willingly ignorant that the heavens of old and the earth standing out of them and the water by which the world that then perished being flooded with water. He talks about Noah and the flood as an example of an abrupt change. And we're going to end on that note a little bit later. So let's talk about lessons that we learn from Noah and the flood. It's not a study of Noah and the flood within itself. That is the building of the ark, exactly how big it was, what he did. Uh, and all the story in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. We did that in our study on Wednesday night. But we're looking at some lessons that we learned from Noah and the flood. Here's the first. We learn a very powerful lesson about authority and how authority works from the story of Noah. Now, there are many people who don't fully understand what the New Testament teaches about authority, but they can understand authority when we come back to the story of Noah. Let's talk about what the New Testament says about authority. We must respect Bible authority. In fact, the Bible tells us that we must do all things by the authority of Christ. Whatever we do in word or in deed, do all by in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 and in verse 17. We must abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. 2 John and verse 9. So we must have authority. We must abide and respect the authority of God. But I want to suggest to you that Noah was bound by the authority of God. How so? Noah was bound by the authority of God in that Noah was told to build what to build. He was told to build an ark. Genesis chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. He wasn't just able to build anything he wanted, but God told him what to build. You were to build an ark. He told him the materials to use. Gopher wood. He couldn't use any wood that he wanted, but he had to use gopher wood according to verse 4. Not only that, he was told the dimensions to use. We'll not go through those dimensions as we did on Wednesday night, but he told him how wide and how tall and how long to build, how many levels it was to have. Tell him about the window that it has and a door on the side. God gave him the exact dimensions to build the ark. He couldn't build it any size that he wanted. Couldn't build it smaller or bigger. God gave him the dimensions. He was bound by the authority of God. Also in chapter 6, God told him who and what to put in it. Here are the people that are to go into the ark. Here are the animals, and here's how many of those animals you're to take. Here's how many of the clean. Here's how many of the unclean you're to put in the ark. What I'm trying to establish is the fact that God was binding Noah by his authority. And so Noah was bound by the authority of God. He was not at liberty to do anything he wanted in building the ark. Now we learn something about authority as we look at the ark, and we see a difference in generic and specific authority. We understand that when it comes to building the ark. When God told Noah to build an ark, had God left that in the generic wood and said, you can build an ark, but build it of wood, Noah would have been at liberty to build it of any kind of wood that he wanted. But in that God specified a particular kind of wood, this gopher wood, that simply means he could not build it of any other wood. That is, it excluded every other kind of wood that Noah could have used. 
Well, if we can understand that, that when God says build an ark of gopher wood, when God specifies, that means he's not at liberty to choose any other wood. We ought to be able to understand that when it comes to music. And that is that God left it in the generic music. We could do any kind of music that God would, uh, would be pleasing, that is to our own ears, because God left it in the generic music. But when God specifies singing, that's just like the gopher wood, we're not at liberty then to choose any other kind of music. Well, let's illustrate again with the Lord's Supper in Acts 20 and verse 7. Had God said, observe the Lord's Supper and give us just to just do that on a day sometime, then we could do that on the first day or the second or the third or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh, whatever day we wanted. But in that God specified the first day of the week here in Acts 20 and verse 7, we're not at liberty to choose any other day. Now, if we can understand that with Noah and the ark, and we can, our friends can understand that, that we ought to be able to see the application when it comes to our worship and our service and the work of the New Testament church. Here's a second thing. Not only do I learn something about authority and how it works and well illustrated from the case of Noah, but I learn a lesson about salvation and obedience. Noah was saved from the flood because of his obedience. Now, when the story is told in Genesis, we'll come back to this a little bit later, so let's go now to Genesis chapter 6. When the story is developing in Genesis chapter 6, we see the story of how wicked the world was, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but at verse 8 now, I learned that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous man. Verse 9 said that he was a just man, perfect in his generation. That is, he was blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. So here is a description of a man who is living godly and living righteous. In other words, he was living right before God. He was obedient to God. Now, when God gave him instructions to build the ark, notice at verse 22, we pointed this out in our Bible study Wednesday evening, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. In other words, God gave him instructions. He said, here's what you're to do in building the ark. Here's how wide it's to be, how long it's to be, here's how tall it's to be. Here's how many levels it's to have. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him. Now watch the next three words. So he did. What a statement of obedience. What God has told you, could it be said, so he did. What God has told you, so she did. That's exactly what Noah did. Noah was saved because of his obedience. But let's go further. I want you to see that Noah and his family got in the ark in order to be saved. Let's notice now in Genesis 6 and in verse 18. When God is bringing destruction upon the world, God tells Noah that if you're going to be saved, then you've got to get into the ark in order to be saved from the flood. Notice Genesis 6 and in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant. You shall go into the ark, your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Let's go further to chapter 7 and verse 1. God said to Noah, come into the ark and all your household, for I have seen your righteousness. Now notice further at verse 13. That on that very day, Noah and his sons, and Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wives, and the, Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, they entered the ark, and then in verse 16, God shut them up into the ark. And consequently, they were saved from the flood. Here's the point. God told them to go into the ark in order to be saved. Now let's go to the New Testament and now and see that we must get into the ark, or we must get into the church, an ark so to speak, that we might be saved. In Ephesians 5 and in verse 23, in Paul writing about Christ in the church, he said that Christ is the head of the church and he is, notice now what he says, the Savior of the body. He only promises to save those that are in the body. He only promised to save those in the ark. Now he only promises to save those in the church. 
So just like Noah had to get into the ark to be saved, we must get into the church of our Lord in order to be saved. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to see that there is a parallel between Noah's salvation and ours. Peter draws this parallel. This is one of the New Testament passages. That's why I briefly introduced them earlier. So when we come back, we know a little of the context. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 now. And I want you to notice what Peter said. And what he points out is that Noah and his family, the eight souls, were saved by water. He said, now, we'll come back to verse 19 about the spirits in prison. Explain that in just a moment. Who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. In the case of Noah, he said, there were eight souls that were saved by water. Now notice verse 21. Notice verse 21. Verse 21 says, there, there, also, there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism, or that is, baptism doth also now save us, the King James says. In other words, that was a type or an antitype of our salvation. So here's the point. Notice in verse 21, likewise, he said, baptism doth also now save us. You say, what's the parallel? Let's see. The case of water. Let's go back at verse 20 now. How in, in, in what sense were the eight souls saved through water? You say they never got into the water at all. They were in the ark and they didn't get into the water. So how is it that the water saved? That's what the text says. Look at verse 20. That is, eight souls were saved through water. The point is that Noah and the family of Noah, the eight souls were saved by water, that is, by them through the ark, they were transported from the old world to the new world through water, the text said. Now notice now verse 21. Verse 21 now says, likewise, baptism doth also now save us. What's his point? Just as Noah was transported from the old world to the new world and saved by water, so baptism doth also now save us. It carries us from an old world of sin to a new world of righteousness. That's the parallel that is drawn in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now there's a lesson there about salvation and our obedience. Here's a third lesson that I learned. Let's go this time to Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 7, and that is, Noah was a great example of faith. Abraham was a great example of faith. But so was Noah a great example of faith. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 7. And let's build several points from Hebrews 11 and in verse 7. Remember now, this is, let's get ahead of ourselves to get to chapter 12 and then we'll back up to chapter 11. You remember chapter 12 talks about running the Christian race. And then he says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witness. It's a picture of running the Christian race. And you look to the stands, that's the cloud of witness of those who've already run and they have won. And consequently, their example is an encouragement to you. Who is that cloud of witness? It is found in chapter 11. So let's go back to chapter 11 and look at those who've gone before us. They ran their race. They won their race. That encourages me. I can do the same. If that's not the point, then chapter 12 has no meaning. So let's go to chapter 11 and notice the example of Noah. We look to the stands as we're about to begin our race. Or in the midst of running our race, we look and we see Noah. What about Noah? Verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. 
moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now let's list some things that we learn about Noah and his faith. First of all, Noah believed and accepted the unseen. That's what faith involves. Back up to chapter 11 and verse 1. This is verse 7. Back up six verses. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. That's what faith involves. So Noah believed and accepted the unseen. Notice again verse 11. He being divinely of warned of things not yet seen. Noah is not looking around and seeing the waters rise. Noah is not looking around and seeing the world is flooded completely and only a small island on which he's standing. But he believed in things not yet seen. That's real and that's true faith. Do you have the kind of faith of Noah that you believe and accept that which is unseen? Noah did that. Secondly, I want you to notice that this text tells me Noah was moved by divine warning. Not everybody is moved by divine warning. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. God tells him, I'm bringing a world, I'm bringing destruction upon the world in a flood. Noah believed that. He was divinely warned and he was moved by that divine warning of things he had never seen before in his life. And we pointed out in our study on Wednesday night, the amazing part of Noah's preaching is not the fact that the world did not accept Noah's preaching and they didn't believe him, but it's the fact that Noah believed God himself. That's the amazing part. Because he had never seen a flood like this. He'd never seen rain like this. And yet Noah believed God. He believed and he was moved by the divine warning. Let's notice a third thing from this text, and that is that Noah acted upon that faith. Noah did not just look around and say, you know what, God, I, I know you're a God and I know you're true and you say there's going to be a flood. I believe there's a flood. I believe there will be. You say you'll destroy the world. I believe you'll destroy the world. But Noah acted upon that faith. What did he do? Look at verse 7 now. Hebrews eleven seven 7, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. There's a lot of work in building that ark. He's doing that by faith. With every tree that he cut and every saw that he made, and every hammer mark that he made was all done by faith because he prepared an ark because of his faith. Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Why are you doing that? God said there's going to be a flood. Yeah, right. God's going to destroy the world. Yeah, right. The world doesn't accept it. He acted and he built an ark. I'll tell you something else about his faith. Noah's faith and action led to the saving of his family. Had God said, or, or had Noah said to God, I, I, I've never seen a flood before and I don't believe that. I'm not going to waste my time building this ark. It's a big boat for me to build. Getting all these animals in, I can't do that. Noah very well himself may have been lost and every one of his children may have been lost. Because of the faith of Noah, notice what the text says, read with me again at verse 7, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with God to the fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Noah's faith in his action led to the saving of his family. Here's another thing I learned from this text. Noah condemned the world by his faith. Now, did Noah condemn the world in his words by, by preaching to him? He was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. There is no doubt he went to the world and he told the world, y'all are condemned. And he went to the world and said, you're going to drown. There's coming a flood and you're not going to be saved. 
God's going to destroy every one of you because of all your wickedness. No doubt he did that. But that's not what this text is saying. This text is saying by his example and by his faith, he stood to condemning the world by the example that he set. Are you condemning those around you by the example that you set, by the strong faith that you have? There's a great example of faith in looking at that of Noah. But here's another lesson I learned from looking at the story of Noah and the flood, and that is the long-suffering of God. God was very long-suffering with the sinful world. Let's go back to Genesis 3. You remember this in Genesis 3. How God was so long-suffering. Genesis 6 tells us at verse 3 that he said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for indeed his flesh... And yet his days shall be 120 years. From the time that God determined he was going to destroy the world by a flood, it was 120 years before it took place. I'm going to tell you, that's patience. That's long-suffering. Can you imagine God seeing that man's intent of his heart is so evil? We'll talk about that in a moment. It's all he thinks about. But very well understand that God said in a year I'm going to destroy him, or in three months I'm going to destroy him, and in 30 days I'll destroy the world. But God said I'm giving him 120 years. That's patience. It's long-suffering. God waited for change while the ark was being prepared. That was the point of 1 Peter. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. That was the point. And God preached, and God waited. So let's notice beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Said we'd come back and talk about that. Christ preached to the spirits in prison. There is nothing in the text that says that they are in prison, by the way, these are spirits in prison. This is not a literal prison. It's not saying that this is somebody in prison, he went to somebody behind bars and preached, but these are the spirits in prison. They're in prison now, they're in prison at the time that Peter is writing, but there's nothing in the text that says they were in prison at the time that they were preached to. You say, how do you know? The context is going to explain that for me. What do you mean, Peter, that Christ preached to the spirits, if I might paraphrase, that are now in prison? Who, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient? The spirits in prison were formerly disobedient. When once the long-suffering God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. An example of God's long-suffering was when, when the Lord was preaching to the spirits in prison. That is, when Noah was out preaching, you need to repent. Noah was saying you need to repent. Noah was saying you need to repent. He's saying you've got to change. You've got to change your ways. That's preaching to those who at the time Peter is writing, they're now in prison. They're being held in reserve to the judgment. That's the point. Jude, 2 Peter, other passages talk about the same kind of thing. Let's go again to 2 Peter chapter 3 now, and in verse, um, verse 9. We're focusing on the long-suffering of God. What we've seen so far is that Genesis 3 says God was so long-suffering that he said, I, I'm not going to strive with man any longer. He's got so wicked, he's got, I'm paraphrasing, he's got so wicked so bad I'm going to destroy man, but I'm going to give him 120 years. That's a long time. Very patient. 
And then he preaches to the spirits who are now in prison while he was preaching. That was the long suffering of God while he waited while the ark was being prepared. While the ark's being built, God's trying to preach to them through the preaching of Noah. And that's God's long suffering. Let's go down now to verse, verse 9 of our text, 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, when God makes a promise and it's a long time waiting for it to come to pass, that's an example of the long-suffering of God. So now, let's talk about the context now. In the context, he mentions the flood. He mentions the flood in this sense. Notice he said, they're willfully ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Now, in that context of talking about this flood, he's saying the long period of time is not God waiting, not failing to do what he said, but God is giving us time to do what he said. I want you to get that point. We'll come back to this context in a moment. But in 2 Peter 3, the argument was God's delaying the second coming. He's keep putting it off and putting it off. I don't believe he's going to do it. I don't believe he's going to do it. Said he will, but I don't believe it's going to happen. That's an example of the long-suffering of God. That's an example of the patience of God. And he puts that in the context of talking about the flood. So go back to verse 9 now. Let's get the point. Verse 9. God is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. God had said there would be a flood. There was 120 years before it ever happened. God was not slack concerning his promise. God brought it to fulfillment. God saying the Lord will come again and he'll destroy the world by fire. God is not slack concerning that promise. But God's delaying of that is an example of his long-suffering. So that long period of time is not God failing to do what he said. He's giving us time to do what he said. That's the point of 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's another thing I learned. No in the flood. God will punish the ungodly. We live in a world that thinks that God's love and mercy, if they believe in God, they think God's love and mercy means that everybody's going to be saved. How could he stand to see someone perish? Isn't he a God of love? Doesn't he care? I can't imagine God destroying all the wicked. I know he says he will, but I just can't imagine someone may think of, of the judgment day coming and then begging and pleading with tears in their eyes and he sends them off to eternal hell. I can't imagine that. What I want you to see is that God destroyed the ungodly in a flood. Let's talk about how ungodly the world had become. Let's go back to Genesis. This will be an easy reminder because we just came through chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. So let's go into chapter 6. How evil had man become? I'll tell you how evil they become. We get Genesis 6 and in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continuous. That's about all he ever thought about. But all man ever thought about was evil and sin. Look at verse 13. The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence, he said. Look at chapter 8, and verse 21. This is after the flood is over. And God makes a covenant with, with Noah. But he talks about man's tendency. 
And God said, I'll never will again to curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, no man's prone to do evil. We see how evil and ungodly the world became. But the world was destroyed, the ungodly world was destroyed by the flood. Let's look at 2 Peter 2 and in verse 5. Let's look at two passages on that point. I'm just trying to remind us something we know that I learned from the case of Noah, that God will destroy the ungodly. God will punish the ungodly. Look at 2 Peter 3, 2 and in verse 5. Remember now the context of this. It was in the context, will God really punish those who are false teachers and those who follow them? Well, you bet he will. Peter, give me an example. All right, what about the angels that sin? That's one. Well, give me another example. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Give me another example. All right, look at verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. God didn't spare them. Only eight souls did he spare. But he destroyed the entire world. Let's go to one more passage along that line, and that's in Luke chapter 17. We quickly noticed that one. We said that was parallel to Matthew 24, you remember. In Luke chapter 17 in verse 26, and I should include it that verse 27 because that's the verse I'm really wanting. That as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. They ate and they drank and they married wives and were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. God destroyed the ungodly. God will do the same thing again. Here's another lesson I learned from Noah and the flood, and that's about success in preaching. I want to tell you, preachers get discouraged for little or no success in preaching. Noah must have been discouraged. Noah preached with what seemed like very little success. Noah's described as a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 5. And through Noah, the Lord preached to the spirits. That's what we talked about a moment ago. When the Lord was preaching to the spirits in prison, the context shows that that was when the preaching of Noah took place. And so all that preaching was done by the mouth of Noah. He preached for a hundred plus years. We last see an age given in chapter 5 and verse 32. is 500 years old. When he entered the ark, he was 600 years old. It's about 100 years. But 100 plus years, he's preaching. You think about that. I've been preaching 40. Can't imagine preaching 100 years. And only eight souls were saved, and that was his family. That's all he saved. Saved eight souls. You would think that you would be able, preaching a hundred years, that you might save thousands, perhaps. It's not thousands, maybe hundreds. It's not hundreds, maybe dozens of people you could save. When all the dust was settled and the flood waters began to rise, there were only eight people on board of that boat. Noah had been preaching for over a hundred years. You think about that. Seems like very little success. And may I suggest to you that we may have little success in reaching the world. God doesn't tell us to convert the world, but only to try. The Great Commission is given to me, it's given to you. Go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God didn't say go convert the world, he just said go try. Jeremiah preached for 50 years. To my knowledge, he never had a convert. 
I can't imagine. Jesus himself preached, and multitudes followed him. And had one of his hard lessons about your following me for food, what my message is is a spiritual message, and many of the disciples turned and walked no more with me. Most of them turned around and left. Very little success, it seems. But maybe Noah had more success than we think. If we could just salvage our families, we'd be doing good, wouldn't we? If we could just salvage our families. There are some who preach for, I'm not talking about in the pulpit, but preaching in our families and in our, in our communities. And not only do not have a number of converts, we don't have our own families to save. When we get on the boat, we look around and we may be the only ones. If we could just save our families, we may be doing good. Here's the last thing I learned. There's going to be an abrupt change. But when it comes, it's going to be too late. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3 is about the second coming of the Lord, and the scoffers argued it's not going to happen. If the Lord is coming back and the world is going to be burned up with fire, that's an abrupt change. And there's not going to be an abrupt change, the scoffer said. How do you know? Because there's never been one. There's never been one, they said. Since the beginning of time, all things as they are. Look at verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There's not going to be a second coming. There's not going to be a destruction of the, of the world. It's not going to happen. All things continue as they were since the beginning of time. And Peter says that is not so. Look at verse 5. For they are willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the waters and in the water, that is by the very word that created the world, that same world, was perishing by the flood, uh, was flooded with water, verse 6. So his point is, there has been an abrupt change. No, all things do not continue as they were since the beginning of creation. There's been an abrupt change. There was a flood that destroyed the world. Now, verse 7, that same word, that same word that created the world, that same word that destroyed the world by flood, that same word is going to destroy the world by fire. Look at verse 7. But the heavens... And the earth which now exists and are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God created the world, that was an abrupt change. God destroyed the world by a flood, that was an abrupt change. God's going to destroy it again by fire, that's going to be an abrupt change. There has been, there will be an abrupt change. Now the flood came upon the world suddenly, Matthew 24. Let's go back to that context for a moment. The world came floodingly, uh, suddenly upon the, uh, the world so that there was this abrupt change. Let's go back to Matthew 24. Now let's set the context. There was a question earlier in the context about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus answers that. It's a question concerning the second coming. When will that be? And he said, no one knows neither the son, nor the, uh, no, not the son, but the, but the father only. But heaven and earth will pass away, but that day and hour knows no one, no not my uh, father, uh, no not even the angels in heaven, but my father only. Verse thirty-six. Now, what about that day? When it says beginning at verse thirty-six, it says this: 
Those concerning that day, he says, let's, let's go back and talk about the flood. Give me an example from the flood. They were not expecting the flood. Oh, they heard that there was a flood coming, but they weren't sitting around thinking, you know what, I believe the flood's about going to, I believe it's going to come tomorrow. I believe it's going to be the next day. Let's get ready for that. They weren't doing that. What was going on? As it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What was going on in the days of Noah? Look at verse 38. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. You see, they were not expecting the flood. They were going about their daily life. They're having weddings. They're having feasts. They're having dinner. They're going about whatever they normally do. Then suddenly the flood rushed in upon them. There was an abrupt change. It's too late. Notice verse 39. They did not know until the flood came and took them away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be the same thing with the second coming. The Lord has promised He's coming. You say, I don't see any sign of Him coming. When is He coming? Well, that's the way they were with the flood. Where's the flood? Where's all this water Noah keeps talking about? He's been telling us for a hundred years it's coming. Where is that water? And then suddenly the flood came. And people are wondering, when is Christ coming? Well, we don't know. I don't see any sign of that. But suddenly as it was in the days of Noah, there's going to be an abrupt change. And finally, I want to share with you the thought that when an abrupt change takes place, it's going to be everlasting too late. Can you imagine standing off at a distance and laughing at Noah. As you see him herding the last of the animals into the ark. Got all of his family and got all these animals. And the ark closes. You wonder what on earth is that crazy man doing? And then it suddenly starts raining. And you see waters rising like you've never seen before. And you think... What in the world's going on? What on earth's happening here? Wait a minute, Noah. Wait a minute, Noah. I might want to talk to you now. It's too late. Too late. They perish in the flood. And can you imagine standing off and laughing at those who are Christians who are gathered in the church of our Lord? And people stand off and they're laughing just like they did at Noah. Where is the sign of his coming? And then suddenly they hear the trumpet sound and the Thunder is taking place. Now they want to talk about the gospel, but it's too late. You see, when an abrupt change takes place, it was too late for those in the flood, and it's going to be too late for those in the world, those who are not in the ark. Oh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. There's perhaps more. That's the beginning of a list of things we learned from Noah and the flood. We're not going to do that with every story that we go through as we go through our survey of the Old Testament, but there will be a few We'll stop and enhance our understanding or application wherein we don't have time to drive these points home in our Bible study. We learn a lot of things from Noah about authority and how it works, salvation and obedience, an example of faith, the long-suffering of God, how God will punish the ungodly, success in preaching, and there's going to be an abrupt change, and when that happens, it's going to be everlasting too late. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God, would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come all together? We stand and sing.